0: One of my favorite things is the Buddha's double arrow analogy. Would you rather be hit with one arrow or two arrows? Well, I'd rather be hit with one arrow. So if you're stressed, that's one arrow. But not wanting to be stressed, that's a second arrow. You're not accepting what already exists. You're adding a second layer of suffering to your already suffering. So if you can just accept that first arrow and not stab yourself with a second one, then you can actually just relieve that suffering, even if slightly.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Brain Matter Chatter, the podcast where we discuss mental health and academia with graduate students, faculty, and the experts.
2: Welcome back to our three-part series, Anxiety and Anger with Rob Hicks, or if you're new, welcome. I'm Naveen, joined today by Julia. We recently chatted with Rob in part one of our series titled Gender Stereotypes, Men's Mental Health, which will be linked in the description in case you missed it. Today, Julia and I will continue chatting with Rob about his experience in applying a mindfulness practice, expressing emotions other than anger, and panic attack or anxiety triggers and what to look out for. And we'll also share details on his experience in our final part of the series on becoming a parent during graduate school. As a recap, Rob is completing his PhD at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada in kinesiology and neuroscience. Rob actually reached out to Brain Matter Chatter and asked to share his perspective, which we really appreciate and hope that more people will reach out to do the same. For me personally, hearing about other people's stories and acknowledging that I'm not alone has been unbelievably helpful in coping with my own mental health struggles. And too often do we feel alone when in reality there are more people around us dealing with similar stresses than we think. September is National Suicide Prevention Month to address suicide, its causes, awareness around it, and its prevention. So firstly, we want to bring awareness and remind individuals that they are loved, they do matter to the world, and we will leave a few links and resources here in the description for anyone seeking help or if you know anyone who does need some help. So let's get right into it. So we were on the topic of mindfulness practice.
1: When you say mindfulness, are you talking like you're meditating or is it just training yourself to take the moment before reacting?
0: Yeah, that's a bit of a loaded question. (laughs) Once you get into things like a mindfulness practice or meditation, a lot of these terms and definitions kind of overlap. Mindfulness is a bit of a buzzword now that gets overused or misused a lot. I tend to go with John Kabat-Zinn's definition It's paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. And what meditation is, is that deliberate practice of that. So they overlap the terms meditation and mindfulness. It's hard to learn to be mindful just going about your day-to-day life. You have to set aside time to practice being mindful in the beginning. So when I adopted a mindfulness practice, I would meditate for five to 10 minutes every morning, and then maybe subsequently five or 10 minutes, again, two or three times throughout the day, just to A, get that controlled practice of how to be mindful and what paying attention to the moment non-judgmentally is, getting those reps of noticing I'm lost in thought, and then bringing myself back to whatever my anchor is, like the breathing or anything like that. And it's this controlled, deliberate paying attention to something in the moment, non-judgmentally. What you learn is as you do this, it's not like going to the gym where I go to the gym for 45 minutes in the morning, and then I go three or five times a week, and I accumulate these physiological adaptations but I can just go about my daily life outside of those 45 minutes. Mindfulness and meditation. The idea is once you're off the cushion, so to speak, once you're done that deliberate meditation, you want to continue that throughout your day as much as possible. Notice when you're lost in thought, come back to the present moment. That can be on your commute. So then you start to practice and you start to quote meditate in non-formal settings. So your commute, if you're walking to work or walking to the bus or walking to your car or driving, you know, you can pay attention to something in the present moment and meditate or be mindful in these different scenarios. And then what you learn is I can do this all the time. I can practice this all the time. But especially in the beginning, and I mean, lots and lots of reps, you need that deliberate practice, which people would say is called meditation. People would say meditation, (laughs) it's an illusion. You're always meditating. You're always doing something. You know, there's all these esoteric definitions of what each term is and means and should mean, but I think just for your day-in, day-out mindfulness and meditation, it's that mindfulness, paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally, meditation, deliberately practicing that for a given period of time, and then trying to integrate it throughout your day. I'm interested in mindfulness and meditation from an intellectual standpoint. So I think being in neuroscience and being interested in the brain and the mind, going from that brain Science observation mindset to a mind kind of undefined conscious observation. It's an intellectually stimulating thing for me to do. I know some people try meditation and they find it so boring or they just don't like it that, you know, they don't want to do it the next day. Whereas I'm interested in the idea of. How does paying attention to my breathing for five minutes a day influence my mentality throughout the day? That's an intellectually stimulating thing for me to do. I find it interesting. So I'm fortunate in that sense that I'm kind of drawn to it naturally. But it it helps with so many things. So noticing when I'm procrastinating because of stress, noticing, oh, I've worked for five minutes and uh, and I'm already looking at my phone again. Being able to pay attention to what's happening to you non-judgmentally, and then being in the next moment, that's what's important is being in the next moment. You learn that you can relieve yourself of a lot of stress that you're feeling or anything like that. The common example is road rage. You're driving, someone cuts you off. There's that instant of, you know, anger wanting revenge, wanting to quote, teach them a lesson, whatever. And if you're not paying attention, you'll go down that road. You'll be angry. And then you might be angry for a long period of time. And it just might transfer from that person who cut you off to something at school, to something at work. And you don't notice that it's just draining you and repetitively happening. But if you can mindfully pay attention and not judgmentally attend to each moment, Once that person's cut you off and nothing happened from it, if you're paying attention to the present moment, that's already gone. That moment of the person cutting you off and making you angry, nothing came of it. It's gone. Let go. Pay attention to something in the moment. Don't pay attention to something that happened five seconds ago, 20 minutes ago half an hour ago. And when you notice these things, you'll notice that you suffer a lot because you cling on to these things that you're, oh, I'm angry about, you know, this person that cut me off, but I'm justified in that emotion because they cut me off. But you're the one who's suffering (laughs) because you're the one who's angry for an extended period of time that you ultimately could just let go of If you light yourself and if you're paying attention, you can get as deep into it as you want about like the nature of consciousness and all that deep-rooted traditional borderline religious stuff that people can get into with the mindfulness practice. But if you just view it as a mental skill that you can learn and a different mode of operation, in terms of how you live your moment-to-moment life, its benefits when you pay attention can be exponential. I don't know if you guys relate to this. I love listening to music. I love music. I love playing music. I love listening. It's one of my passions. When I'm not mentally healthy, I know things aren't going well because I'm never satisfied with certain things. So if I'm picking music to try to do work to, right? I'll pick a song and then a minute in, no, this isn't good enough. This, I'm not getting that peak experience that I get with music sometimes maybe it's this song maybe it's this song and I end up wasting five to ten minutes 15 minutes and then either just being mad and not listening to music or just being dissatisfied with what I'm listening to as opposed to just playing something and listening to it
1: I definitely relate to that
0: (laughs) yes that's something that I'm robbing myself of joy
2: I've also noticed that when I'm going through just a really tough time, I have no desire to listen to new music or search for new music, which is against everything that I've always been passionate about. And right. yeah, I've definitely noticed it and I, I've tried to kind of make myself, but then I'm not interested and I know that it's odd, but I, I completely relate as well.
0: So. Yeah. It's okay to not want to listen to music too. That's another thing you can just accept. I know it's like, Oh, this is used to be one of my passions, but in the moment it's just not happening. You're suffering by trying to force it. (laughs) If you just go, I'm just going to work in silence. And you don't have to be happy about it. You don't have to be angry about it. Just be neutral about it and accept it. Neutrality is peace. Neutrality can be very peaceful. I'm a very emotional person. I like experiencing emotions. I know this. I'm very rarely centered. But when I find that neutral center that I can just observe, it's so relieving. It's so peaceful. So things like picking a song, put your library on shuffle and listen to the music. It's passing. You can't force this experience that you want because it's just not. Currently happening. So let go. Just let go and just accept what's happening, whether it's stressful, whether it's not. One of my favorite things is the Buddha's double arrow analogy. Would you rather be hit with one arrow or two arrows? Obviously, everyone would say, well, I'd rather be hit with one arrow. Okay. So if you're stressed, that's one arrow, but not wanting to be stressed. That's a second arrow. You're not accepting what already exists. You're adding a second layer of suffering to your already suffering. So if you can just accept that first arrow and not stab yourself with a second one, it really helps you a, it helps you gain perspective, all this type of things. You can observe yourself, learn what makes things happen a certain way within you and whatever, but then you can actually just relieve that suffering, even if slightly. And I think one thing that neuroscientists in general know on some level, the physiology and the mechanisms of what we're experiencing. So I try to view it from that standpoint. My emotions aren't this thing I have to fight with all the time. I can't always be happy. I can't stop myself from being angry instantaneously all the time. I can't just snap my fingers and feel the way I want to feel at any time. So just observe what's happening. Kind of think about what's happening in my body right now. Why is it happening? Is it worth stressing over for my survival? Because that's what we're responding to. We're just trying to do what nature's designed us to do, what evolution has designed us to do, is to survive and continue on because that's how we are. But we're conditioned a certain way in today's society that these things that are viewed as stressors and important to your survival might not necessarily be that way.
2: Let me just ask you, what are some signs that you might notice in a friend, someone who's struggling, and what are some signs of, initial mental health decline and then give me suggestions for approaching this type of person?
0: I think it depends on your relationship and how close you are with the person, but noticing if they're easily perturbed, it manifests in people in different ways in different contexts. There's certain obvious signs of stress that, you know, someone's undergoing a stressful time. But that dress sometimes can be not always obvious, or people can hide it pretty effectively. When we ask each other how we are, especially in academia, you know, you walk into the office and you have that small talk or whatever. When you ask someone how they are, If they give you that, oh, I'm fine. And they move on. If you have this relationship with the person, you can really ask like, no, really, how are you doing? Right. Don't say, how are you as a greeting? You can reach out and say, I actually want to know how you are. I've had a lot of colleagues that struggled with mental health issues throughout their degrees. And you can tell, but you don't want to just prod someone to tell you something they don't want to tell you. And I don't think it's everyone's place to do that. I don't think you need to have a savior complex where you need to deal with everyone else's problems on top of yours. And I think it relates to the things we've talked about already is that support system. Try to proactively be part of that support system for the people around you. Try to communicate openly about your struggles, and then other people might feel comfortable to open up to you about their struggles. In terms of signs, I don't know. (laughs) I know people who might seem super angry all the time, but they're okay with operating that way. And then there's people who seem super confident and friendly, and deep down, they're super self-conscious, and they struggle with that stuff. I think what it is, is everyone struggles and we need to adopt the mentality that we're here to support each other. I think the individualistic mentality of Western society, where everyone has to take care of themselves as a species, that's not how we are. We thrive in social connection and, you know, we're social animals. We need each other. But we don't act that way. So there's no specific signs that I would say stand out to me. Obviously, if there's a big change in personality, angry outbursts, not coming into work anymore when they were a person who was involved all the time, those are more obvious. Something's happening. Something's changed. You can reach out and just say, hey, I've noticed this. Do you want to talk about anything again, generically, (laughs) you might not be comfortable doing that with whoever the person is. So it's a balance, (laughs) but I think that proactive support, just telling people I'm a senior PhD student now. I was fortunate that I had very close friends in my masters who were senior PhD students. So I could talk to them about anything. I think grad students sometimes, depending on your relationships and your labs and how you view your lab mates as either colleagues or competition, you might need to proactively create that type of environment with the people around you. So if there's master's students in your lab, reach out to them and just say, hey, if you ever need anything and If you ever need any advice, if you ever need any help with your topic within reason, I'm here for you. I can support you. I think that's really all we can do. If you're not a professional mental health expert or therapist or psychologist or whatever, it's not your job to go out and fix everybody and say, oh, you need to go get help. But I think. If we just take that one more step towards being supportive, communicating things that have we've struggled with. Sometimes it's instinct. Sometimes you can tell someone might be really struggling with something. Don't just abandon the person. Try to maybe nudge them a little bit and ask them, How are you really doing? And you'll probably get those brushed off, like, oh, it's fine, you know. But you can ask more questions and just. Be that proactive support for people, but without feeling the need to solve them. You have to set your own boundaries too. There's a lot of nuance in these (laughs) issues, unfortunately. But I think the coldness of academia sometimes can lead to kind of that perception like, oh, we don't deal with that stuff here, when really we should all want everyone to succeed. We should all want everyone to support each other and be mentally healthy. And we do this, especially in health research for the benefit of others, along with things like scientific inquiry, start with who's immediately around you start with what benefits you encourage people. If going to the gym is something that really benefits you reach out to some of your lab mates who might've moved to where they live and they might not have a gym buddy or whatever and just be like do you want to come with me you don't have to say hey I think the gym would be good for your mental health you should come with me but all those little things they kind of add up and something that you think might be small and not worth it might really help a person but yeah
1: (laughs) so Rob we just have one more question that kind of concludes this topic, and but basically knowing what you know now, what would you say to your past self if you could talk to yourself right before or right when you were struggling with your anxiety?
0: I think I would just say, and I would maybe just say this to early career grad students, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to admit that you're struggling, but you need to work on how to deal with the struggle. I think when I was more cynical and more jaded about it, I just accepted it as reality. And my reality was that everything sucked. And I think that was a bit of a cop-out for me to not address my issues. So if you struggle emotionally, you need to be proactive, both in terms of communicating with those around you, but also just working on yourself as early as possible. So recognizing when you're under stress, communicating to those that can help you with the stress itself. So if it's your thesis, talk to your supervisor about what you're struggling with. Don't just try to hide it under some type of blanket of false productivity or say, oh, well, it's a problem with X, Y, Z when really it's the stress of it. That's the main problem. Talk to your supervisor about that. Get help from a professional. Talk to your colleagues who you feel comfortable talking to about these things. And sometimes just having someone know can be enough of a help it can motivate you to work on it but get help early it's okay to ask for help it's okay to admit you need help and depending on how severe your issues are you might need to take a step back and that's okay I think that was part of my problem was I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to say this is too much. I have to put something down. I would never admit that to myself or other people. My counselor said, you're trying to give hundred percent of yourself to everything. And that's mathematically impossible. <laughs> you cannot do that. You can give hundred percent of yourself in the moment, but you cannot do everything at once. You cannot have it all. You have to learn to balance, to manage and let go of certain things. And it's okay. And you'll be better off for it. You can burn out very quickly in grad school and in other careers, obviously. But I feel like in grad school, it's just this perfect storm for burnout. And once you're burnt out, you can keep going in a burnt out state and keep your head above water. Or at least appear that your head's above water to other people. But it's better to manage that as early as possible learn about these things as early as possible so that you can address them. Yeah. (laughs) That was a long-winded answer, but you know, there's there's lots of things I would say.
1: Awesome. So that was all the questions we had prep next week. I'll be mostly talking about your experience with parenting and academia as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That'll be good.
1: But yeah, thank you so much. Like I I really resonated with this. So I know that a lot of other (laughs) students will as well. (laughs) If uh, our listeners wanted to keep in touch or stay up to date with what you're doing, where could they
0: find you? I'm on Twitter at underscore Rob Hicks. And I'm also on Instagram. My public account is at Neurosnacks where I post some neuroscience lessons about exercise and things I find interesting.
1: Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And it was a great conversation. Yeah,
0: No problem.
2: And that concludes the second part of our anxiety and anger series with Rob Hicks, Julia, myself, and the brain matter chatter gang want to thank again, Rob, for spending time discussing such crucial matters and for being honest with us and our listeners we will continue the conversation in the upcoming episode of the series. You can expect raw details on Rob's experience becoming a parent in academia. So keep your eyes peeled for updates on your chosen podcast platform. And don't forget to follow Brain Matter Chat on Twitter, where we frequently post updates.
1: And with that, we conclude another episode of Brain Matter Chatter. Maya Angelou once said, There's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Let's keep speaking our minds and sharing our stories. To our listeners, please visit @brainmatterchat Brain Matter Chat on Instagram or Twitter to find a list of available mental health and wellness resources. The content today was brought to you by Julia, Naveen, Haley, Olivia, and Ruby. This episode is a Society of Neuroscience Graduate Students production and is generously supported by the Society of Graduate Students, the School of Graduate and Postdoctoral Studies, Student Experience, and Brain Scan at Western University. All music was provided by FreeBeats.io and produced by WhiteHot. Additionally, we thank our featured guest for speaking with us today.